Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Brian Taylor, a professor in the Political Science Department at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. He is also the director of the Moynihan Institute for Global Affairs, named after the late great New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Dr. Taylor is one of the nation's leading Russia scholars and is an expert on Vladimir Putin and the dynamics among Russian elites. His latest book, The Code of Putinism, was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. He's also working on another book uh, and also was among the analysts who clearly said in uh, March 2022 that there was nothing about Vladimir Putin's Ukraine invasion that was out of character. I should also note that I lecture on press and national security at the Maxwell School. Dr. Taylor, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to, to uh, have you on, and I should note for our audience that our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, the late Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Uh, and before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Uh, as I said, General Atomics also sponsors our broader strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Dr. Taylor, thanks very much uh, again uh, for joining us. And I should uh, point out that the National Security Program uh, benefits fits from your uh, wisdom on a regular basis. You talk to the group uh, about uh, Russia. Um, the, the West is fond of saying Russia miscalculated, right? We just heard from Secretary uh, of State Antony Blinken. Uh, he was speaking in Helsinki, welcoming Finland uh, into the alliance. Uh, we were fond of saying that uh, the economy is being hurt, that Russia is isolating itself, that it would pay a high price, and that Russian uh, Russians and, and elites would turn on Putin. Yet, we really, uh, while you know, we wanted sanctions uh, to bite hard, we've not really had them bite particularly hard because we don't want to damage our own businesses. Um, so we want to get, and we don't want to necessarily get tough on the allies that are helping Moscow circumvent sanctions. So you know, while Finland has joined the alliance, um, and there are more sanctions on Russia, the elites haven't turned on Putin. The economy is doing better than many in Europe, including Germany. At this 16-month mark in the war, how is Russia faring, uh, honestly? And what's the outlook that sanctions are going to compel the Russians, uh, and Putin in particular, to somehow stop this? I think Russia, in some respects, is doing better than people anticipated, and in other respects, is doing worse. So it depends a bit on what your baseline is. You'll recall, and our your listeners will recall, that many people assume that the assault on Kiev back in February 2022 would be quite easy for the Russian military, that the Ukrainian state would collapse, the Ukrainian military would not be able to withstand the Russian assault, and that Russia would quickly establish some form of control over much of Ukrainian territory. That obviously did not happen. That initial assault failed. The Ukrainians fought back very well. And the battlefield, such as it is now, is, is more in the eastern part of the country. So in that sense, Vladimir Putin's ultimate goal, which is making sure 
Ukraine remains within the Russian sphere of control, he has not succeeded in that respect. Now, in terms of the Western response and the sanctions and, and the hopes that that might uh, drive Russia uh, out of the war economically or because of opposition within Russia, that obviously has not been the case. I think we should differentiate between possible meaningful goals for sanctions. I think the one that we really have to bear in mind and the most important one is doing damage over the medium term to Russia's economy and its ability to sustain the war effort. And I do think that the sanctions have mattered in that respect. We're seeing that they're running a budget deficit this year bigger than they anticipated. We're seeing they're having problem with supplying various parts for industry. Certain sectors of the economy are doing quite poorly. Others are doing much better. Uh, so it is having this gradual attritional effect on the Russian economy. And I think that will continue to go on. On the other hand, the expectation that some people had that sanctions on the elite would split the elite and drive them away from, from Putin obviously hasn't happened. And in some ways, from the point of view of Putin, the war has bound the broader political and economic elite more closely to him because they've got nowhere else to go from their point of view. Uh, speaking out against the war would be dangerous for them and would undermine their position, undermine their assets, hurt their family's interests, fleeing the country, and speaking out against the war means also losing wealth and influence and also, you know, uncertain repercussions for them. So in some sense, they're forced to be uh, at least passively loyal to the regime. And in that respect, the sanctions did not and could not really uh, force a change that would push Russia out of the war. So I think that means big picture that the sanctions are not going to drive Russia out of the war, uh, but they can make the war effort more difficult on the Russian side. What more um, do you think from a sanctions standpoint has to happen uh, if we're going to cause the kind of damage, right? Because the world is separating into two parts, right? The United States and its allies that have sanctions that sound tougher than they really are, then a large part of the world that is actually violating all of those sanctions and all of us not really putting any pressure, whether it's it's Turkey or the Gulf states or India or any one of a number of other countries that are, you know, quote unquote, violating these sanctions. I mean, what, what has to happen next if we're going to put actually something somewhat more meaningful pressure wise on the on the Russian? I, I think the administration has a tricky job here in terms of trying to figure out ways to tighten various loopholes. So, for example, last year. The West agreed on this oil cap for Russia. They can't sell any oil over $60 a barrel. But the problem is that Russians have found ways around that cap through, uh, you know, illicit tankers and things like that. And so then the next step is to go after the insurance companies that are right. providing insurance to these ships and just to keep trying to tighten the holes in the in the sackage in the sanctions, excuse me, to make them uh, less leaky and more robust. The bigger question that you raise about the rest of the world, unless the administration wants to go after very aggressive secondary sanctions on anyone trading with Russia, which I don't think they'll do, then it involves more things like pressure on 
uh, ostensible U.S. friends to not engage in parallel imports against the sanctions regime and things like that. And efforts are going on in that respect. But again, I don't think there's a silver bullet here. I think it's very much a back and forth game to try and refine these tools and make them bite a bit harder. But we shouldn't think it's going to be a really big bite that's going to just close down the Russian economy. It's more making it harder for them to keep the money flowing, to keep the factories operating, that sort of thing is the most realistic objective, I think. Um, yeah, you know, you you mentioned uh, that there was a sense that somehow these, uh, you know, sanctions and efforts would uh, split uh, the elites uh, away from Putin. There are there are those who said th- these elites don't actually exert any influence on Putin. Rather, they're hangers on to his power as opposed to them being people able to to influence him. And each time Yevgeny Prigozhin says something, you know, it's like, oh, th- there's a rift in in leadership. Um, then there's discussion of the Russian people uh, and this sense that they'll be rising up, right? I mean, the Russian partisans say this all the time. We're the ones who attack the Kremlin. Uh, there's a lot of discontentment. And then if you look at many polls, there still appears to be support for Putin, although I like to point out that during the Cold War, Brezhnev uh, also had high popularity ratings, and my relatives hated Brezhnev, uh, Brezhnev too. How accurate are polls? And, you know, I mean... How likely is it? I mean, even Prigozhin is talking like we could end up with a 1917-style revolution in Russia. What's the likelihood the Russian people stand up, or is it more likely the Russian people just keep their head down, heads down? I think it's more likely that the Russian people keep their heads down. There's a very vigorous debate among social scientists who study Russia, both within Russia and outside Russia, about what to make of the public opinion surveys we see coming out of there. And I tend to be somewhat skeptical about how much they're providing us an accurate picture of what's going on. We need to think of them in a bit more complex way. One fundamental problem is there seems to be some systematic patterns in who opts out even talking to the most well-known public opinion independent surveys. So there's a response problem that is not just general across the population, uh, but there's reason to think that some of the people opt out are those who are most likely to be opposed to the war, younger people and those sorts of things. So we need to look at some of the other polling that's going on that tries to get at the question from multiple different ways. And I think if we add it all up, we'll see that there's a hard core of strong support for Russia's war against Ukraine. There's also a hard core of opposition to Russia's war against Ukraine, but I think there's a lot of people who tend to be supportive, but it's rather soft and passive support. They'd rather not think about the war. Uh, They try not to let it influence their lives. They try and go on with what they're doing. Uh, If Putin said the war is ending tomorrow and we've achieved peace, they'd be happy. If Putin says the war is, well, maybe not happy, but they'd be fine with that. It doesn't affect them. And if Putin says the war is continuing on, they also try and figure out ways to to make it not impinge on their lives. So what does that mean in terms of the stability of the regime? I think unless we see a radical change, either in fortunes at the front or on the economic side, that most people will continue to ignore the war, repress thinking about the war, 
but certainly not be in a situation where they're going to take the incredible risk of going out and saying something publicly against the war. So in that respect, also on the mass side, Putin's control looks fairly stable at the moment. Even massive casualties haven't changed that, to be frank. Um, and, do, and do you think, you know, people say like, oh, you know, if he does a massive mobilization, that's going to be a problem. It's a pretty big country. It's 144 million people. They're up against a country that's now, what, 36 million in terms of how many are left or 38 million, right? How much more mobilization capacity is there before, you know, Russians sort of go, you know, enough's enough and we're taken to the streets like it's 1917? This is an excellent question because one might think, given how relatively disengaged the population has been, that another round of mobilization could be successful. Yet Vladimir Putin is clearly very reluctant to launch one. We saw a big increase in anxiety in Russia back in September when he announced the general mobilization that brought in, they say, around 300,000 people. We know that hundreds of thousands of people left the country at that time, and it's probably over a million since the beginning of the war. Many of those people are young men who don't want to go off and die for Putin's war. Many of them are people uh, who were ideologically opposed to the war. Many of those people are are people who just find it more comfortable to be external at the moment. So it's kind of a mix. Uh, But what I would say is that it seems, given that he hasn't ordered a mobilization, and they've lost a lot of troops over the last nine months since the last mobilization, that they're trying to do a quiet mobilization, putting pressure on people who were conscripted into the army to sign a longer-term contract and be able to send them to the front, offer increased pay for people to try and get them to sign a contract and enlist in the war, but not actually having to announce anything publicly. I think at some point, however, Putin's going to be forced to launch a bigger effort. And you're right that there are millions of draft age people, men in particular, in Russia, and many of those will go along. But my sense is the regime doesn't want to make this war felt more publicly, especially by people in the big cities and among the middle classes. So they'll try and do it without touching Moscow and Petersburg and some of the other big cities too much. Uh, At some point that may not become feasible and then it'll be interesting to see how the public will respond. Um, It's very hard, obviously, to predict the future. And I don't think uh, your crystal ball might be better than some others. But what is the next five years in this look like, right? I mean, there are hopes and dreams that Putin is sick, but we've been hearing for a long time that he's sick, um, right? You and I spoke earlier and, you know, Lukashenko has been, had one foot in the grave for a long time and he's still ticking. Um, you know, Putin is still around. And uh, as you noted in our conversation, right? <laughs> Him dying of natural causes is not exactly strategy, uh, right? What, what does the next five years look like, do you think? How do we need to think about the next five years? Because it doesn't seem like he's leaving office. If he leaves, Yanis Kaisuchins, uh, the Latvian national security advisor, warns that it, it's not going to go directly to Navalny and Karamurza, right? It's likely to get worse before it gets any better, right? Before we can welcome uh, Russia into the, into the circle of democracies. 
from your standpoint, how do we need to visualize these coming five years? So I would say from a strategic point of view, we need to not rely upon false hopes and prayers that Vladimir Putin is suddenly going to to drop dead or, or be overthrown. Uh, the director of the CIA, William Burns, said last summer when asked about Putin's health that Vladimir Putin is unfortunately all too healthy. And I suspect Ambassador Burns has more knowledge of this issue than I do, given where he sits these days. So I think we should assume that Putin will be there for a while. I, I don't see any reason to think he will be out of power. And, and that means that the war is likely to continue for quite some time because I think Vladimir Putin sees this as part of his legacy. It's part of his historic mission as the leader of Russia to gather some of the Russian lands that were lost after the Soviet collapse. His efforts to do so uh, through other methods than war failed, uh, mainly due to his own failures, but that's perhaps a separate discussion. But now that he's committed the Russian armed forces to this war, uh, I, I see him stepping away from it only if left with no other option, which means uh, a lot depends, I think, on what the Ukrainian armed forces are able to do, uh, not only this summer in, in the expected counteroffensive, which may be underway, but also uh, over the next year or two. And we have to give credit to the Ukrainians for their excellent work and their bravery. But we also, I think, need to think about uh, a serious long-term Western commitment to sustaining uh, Ukraine in this war. So the slogan has been, we're with you as long as it takes. And that means putting in place now uh, both the political consensus and the kind of military industrial tools and the training tools and everything else you need to put in place to, to give Ukraine a, an opportunity to inflict enough losses on Russia that they have no other choice but to uh, consider, you know, literally retreating as well as politically retreating from this um, mistaken venture, I would say. Um, you uh, and I want to go uh, to uh, your uh, Putinological skills uh, in uh, a moment, but you know Stalin made big mistakes and Mao made big mistakes, and they both stayed in power for a long time. Some of which ended up costing enormous numbers of lives, uh, both deliberately or whether indirectly. Do like what are you know you said like Putin has made some mistakes like you know, we talk about it, but what are some of the more nuanced mistakes he made, right? Because you said he kind of put himself into this position in some ways, right? That his fingerprintless, uh, his, his warless way of winning this didn't work out, right? What, what do you mean by that? So I wouldn't even say it's a particularly nuanced issue with the mistake he made. And I want to step back from what's happening sort of this week in Ukraine to think more about what Putin's goals were with respect to Ukraine when he took office in 2000. And based on reporting we have, he at that time was concerned that Ukraine would uh, start leaving the Russian orbit and align more with the West. And everything he has done has hastened that effort by Ukraine to leave the Russian orbit. Uh, 
the way they interfered in the 2004 election that backfired on them with the Orange Revolution. And then in particular, the response to the 2013-2014 Euromaidan revolution, the annexation of Crimea, the sponsorship of the, the war in the Donbass, all of that has driven Ukraine away from Russia and towards the EU and towards NATO and towards the West. And a different strategy premised not on we have the power to control Ukraine, but we want to be friends with and develop with Ukraine, with which we have a long history and close economic ties, would have been a more successful strategy. And if we look at public opinion poll on what Ukrainians think about Russians, just a very simple, you like them, do you dislike them? Most Ukrainians before 2014 would say, yeah, we like Russians, we're fine with Russians. Now, the number of people who answer that question positively is 2%, and the number who answer it negatively is over 90%. So that's the premise I'm starting from, which is if Russia wanted to have a Ukraine that it was politically and economically and culturally close to, it would have pursued its interests much differently than the way Vladimir Putin has, because everything he has done has convinced the Ukrainians uh, that there's no trusting Russia, and they are literally out to kill us, and, and we want the help of the West to develop and prosper uh, as a democracy and as an independent, sovereign country. Um, let me uh, go to uh, Putin himself. Um, right, uh, you uh, noted in your piece, right, that there was nothing surprising about Putin's invasion, right? Because some people were surprised that Putin invaded it. And repeatedly, we tend to be surprised or we say we're surprised, whereas Putin is actually remarkably clear about whatever he's going to do. He lays out a case and then he ends up doing it. As you said, even as early as 2000, we knew what his concerns and, and his, his, his worries are. What do policymakers need to bear in mind about Putin if we're going to deter him, shape him, whatever? Uh, cope with them, right? Uh, I looked into his eyes, and you know, uh, you know. For, I mean, it's it just time and again, you know. We and and we cause some of this ourselves because we don't really haven't really been standing up to him in a lot of ways, right? The after 2014 was sort of muted. After 2008, there wasn't a lot of. What, what do we need to bear in mind, and the messages we may have sent him over a long period of time that get him to behave the way he behaves. I think there are a couple of things we need to bear in mind. One is that he has a particular vision of Russia and its place in the world that involves it being considered one of the world's great powers that it needs to be deferred to in its sphere of control along its borders and in the former Soviet space, that there's nothing the West can do to dislodge him from that. And in fact, he completely distrusts the West on these issues and thinks the West has been trying to take advantage of Russia and even humiliating Russia. And he's very set in that view and has been clear about it for a very long time. So we should not expect that some wiser and different approach is going to lead Putin to see the errors of his ways and change course either with respect to, to Ukraine or with respect to the West. I mean, I think he believes that Russia is at war with the West in uh, an indirect but important ways, and he frames it that way. And it's his job as the Russian leader to restore this greatness to Russia that he feel was falsely taken away from Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. So there's no diverting him. There's no uh, 
you know, changing his calculus here, I think his calculus is pretty locked in. So then we have to think about how it is that we deter him and prevent him from achieving these objectives. Um, and I think that at the current moment, uh, obviously hinges very much on the war in Ukraine. I, there are some people out there who'd like to to do other business with Vladimir Putin, but this is the only business he cares about right now. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to also be very focused on making sure that Russia faces a strategic defeat here, because only then can we think about rebuilding a better relationship, which I personally would like to see with a post-Putin Russia. But that relationship will be with a post-Putin Russia, not with Vladimir Putin's Russia. Um, what you know, we there's always concern about red lines, right? We we have set up a number of red lines. So we've said we'll do everything uh, as much as it takes to help Ukraine. But we tend to be a little bit slow. It took us a while to get anti-tank weapons there and long, you know, an artillery and longer range artillery. And now we're but we say pretty much yes to everything after a lot of hang wringing, gnashing of teeth, rending of garments. At the end, what are Putin's red lines? Because on some things he's clear about, on other things he's not as clear about. My view is he's the Terminator. Unless we basically crush that red light from his eyes, he's going to keep keep going. But what are his red lines, and and to what extent do we need to self deter, or or less self deter? You know, I hesitate to say what his red lines are because many of the red lines that were supposedly put out there by him have already been crossed, right? At the beginning of the war, the message he was sending was, you know, anyone who tries to oppose us, we have the ultimate weapons available to us uh, and we won't hesitate to use them. Well, obviously that isn't correct. Uh, you know, they illegally annexed four more territories in addition to Crimea back in September. They've lost territory in those areas since the time of the annexation. Uh, you know, that hasn't changed anything. Uh, Ukraine struck, it appears it was Ukraine struck the Crimean bridge. That didn't change anything. So at, at this point, I think the goal should be not to, to worry about his red lines, but to worry about how to put military pressure on Russia to force them uh, to think about what else they might lose and therefore what they should negotiate about. Now, I would say uh, I agree with the Biden administration approach from the beginning that the one sort of limit on our side is we're not deploying U.S. troops. NATO's not deploying NATO troops directly in Ukraine to fight this war. We will help Ukraine with military and economic assistance and intelligence assistance, but we are not in this fight directly. And I think that's a very important position to hold to, uh, given the risk of nuclear escalation with Russia. But short of that, uh, I think we've learned that continuing to supply the equipment that Ukraine needs and the training that Ukraine needs is not going to necessarily uh, you know, dramatically change how Putin responds to this or that setback, because he also has to think about, OK, if we if we escalate, uh, what happens if it doesn't work? Right. So he's got to, to think about not only. Uh, you know, trying to deter what Ukraine or its Western partners might do, but what might be the response if he tries to go up the escalation ladder? Uh, obviously, people 
worry about that. And we should be worried about that, but we shouldn't um, worry about it so much that we're hamstrung from doing what it takes to, to give Ukraine the ability to retake its lawful territory. Because ultimately, I think it would send a very bad message in terms of international politics if a power can use conventional force to gobble up a big chunk of its neighbor's territory and then use nuclear weapons to hold that territory. I don't think that's a safe world to live in, in which the most aggressive autocrats think, okay, as long as I grab it conventionally, my nukes will allow me to keep it. Uh, given the principles of uh, the UN order about territorial integrity, uh, I, I think it's important to make that uh, the centerpiece of our way of talking about this war. Um, you, you, you have to. I don't. Want, I don't want to use the term admire, but it's interesting how he's using. Uh, Putin is using right uh, the unilateral withdrawal from New Start to add greater vagueness. Right. I mean, right now we have enough insight into what the status of their nuclear forces is. I mean, obviously we have a lot of other ways of doing that as well. But it was an interesting bit of, um, right, br- brinksmanship. Uh, in 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 the process, right, to add a little bit more uncertainty, um, d- dangerous as it is. Yes, and I think the message that came from Jake Sullivan last week about how we will continue to abide informally by the numerical limits in the START Treaty as long as Russia does, I think that was the right message. I don't think there's any point for the United States in, in launching a new arms race in the, in the nuclear realm. And hopefully Russia will realize that there's no interest uh, in ability, quite frankly, to engage in that arms race at, the, at this point either. So I think even with the treaty, uh, you know, largely rendered void because of Russia's actions, I think there's a precedent for continuing to, to abide by the limits and having some informal agreement to, to make those stick. Washington, uh, as as you know, is exceptionally good at um, focusing on nuance, uh, messaging. Um, Elliot Cohen wrote a thoughtful piece in the Atlantic. Uh, you know that you know every other day there's a revelation of Ukrainian capabilities or attributing strikes to Ukraine. Um, you know, yesterday in the paper was a was an article. Uh, you know, that the Ukrainians are supplying the drones uh, that are uh, striking uh, inside uh, Russia and attributing it to U.S. officials. For Washington, this is message. Is this nuance? I mean, how is Putin looking at all of this? Uh, right. Calls for negotiation. We have to leave doors open for negotiation. Negotiation is imperative. Uh, the Indonesian leader was pushing that message at the Shangri-La dialogue. I mean, what what is what is how does Putin interpret all of this, quote, subtlety and messaging and shaping? I mean, does he regard it as weakness? I guess I would distinguish a couple of things. I mean, I, I think the the leaks you referred to coming from inside the U.S. government are not helpful, but I don't think they really shift the way Vladimir Putin thinks about the war. I think he's serious when he says we're at war with all of NATO. This is not just Ukraine. I know that's a way of persuading the population and also perhaps himself why the war has gone so badly for them in important respects. But I also think it's genuine and serious on his part. So finding out that 
the, the administration has determined that Ukraine did this or that uh, thing inside Russia. I don't think that will come as a surprise to him. Uh, but I do think the search for uh, an exit, which involves granting him the territory he seized would be a huge mistake, which is what a lot of the peace initiatives sort of come down to. Like, let's just freeze the, the conflict where it stands and then work out the details. But Ukraine, for very good reasons, is not willing to talk about that because it involves leaving millions of people in territory controlled by Russia in places where we know they have set up torture chambers where crimes against humanity have taken place, where thousands of children have been deported to Russia uh, from Ukraine. And so that's not a winning solution for Ukraine. And there's no reason to think that Vladimir Putin would be satisfied by that and not simply bide his time and use that uh, time of stalemate and ceasefire to prepare for the next attempt to fully bring Ukraine under his control. And you uh, wrote an article in March uh, basically saying, right, those who say that Crimea, Donbass, Luhansk, and all these territories are actually gone for good, it's a little bit too soon to say that, right? I mean, why would Kiev negotiate all of that away uh, as a condition to, you know, end fighting again when it's, it's all sovereign Ukrainian territory that was taken? However you want to debate Crimea, it was Ukrainian territory. Yes, and I don't want to debate Crimea either. Vladimir Putin on multiple occasions said Crimea was not a territorial dispute before 2014. The, the treaty on the Russian-Ukrainian border that he signed personally in 2003 recognized Ukraine and its 1991 borders. And I think the international community has been very clear. Uh, and, and I mean that quite literally, not just the West, but if we look at votes on the annexation of Crimea in 2014 in the General Assembly, there was not a lot of support around the world for saying, sure, you can you know, waltz in and take this territory and claim it as yours, and we'll just redraw the borders and go back to normal. No, that's not how uh, things work these days. Th those kinds of wars of territorial aggrandizement are actually quite rare in the modern world, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise, uh, and we should try and stick to that principle. So I think that has to be the political position that we adopt. Uh, you know, how we get to that point is probably going to be a much longer story given Russian power. But I, I think the principle is an important one to uphold. And I am glad that the Biden administration and our allies have been sticking very much firmly to that position. Um, you, you talked about the mistakes, obviously, that Putin made to drive Ukraine away from Russia. What are the mistakes that we made over in the 20 years? Because you're a uh, scholar, not just of broad Russian history, uh, but of all the Cold War uh, and, uh, and, and the decades since. What are the mistakes that we made that actually sort of empowered Putin and important inflection points that got us to the point that are worth learning and remembering to keep maybe China or another autocrat elsewhere in the world from making the same miscalculation? I hate to be a, a Monday, morning, Monday morning quarterback, as the expression goes, so I don't want to be too critical of past administrations who didn't know what we know now. They didn't know what we were heading towards at the time. But I guess the one thing I, I would say was uh, the sanctions in response to the annexation of Crimea were very important. The military training and military assistance that Ukraine got after that point was very important and put them in a position today to, to fight uh, a relatively successful operation against Russia. 
But I think there was a mistake with respect to things like uh, Nord Stream 2, the idea that after Russia had already annexed uh, part of Ukrainian territory, that we were going to say that the way to integrate Russia into the West is to continue to buy gas from them uh, in a way that would empower them to put even more pressure on Ukraine. I think that we can say, certainly in hindsight, was definitely a mistake. Um, and I guess I would say more broadly, and this refers to a point that you made earlier, that uh, we should take seriously what Putin says, because it's often consistent with what he does and the evidence we have about how he thinks about the world. I think sometimes there's an effort to dismiss uh, what Putin says, because he obviously lies sometimes. We know he lies sometimes. But to dismiss everything he says is just for either point scoring or domestic propaganda. I think, uh, you know, if you watch him over the years, much of what he has said about how he feels about global politics, how he feels about politics in the region, how he feels about his own domestic situation has been borne out by his later actions. So uh, it's, it's important when thinking about a country like Russia with a very personalist autocracy, with much of the power centered in one leader, to, to listen to him when he tells you what he's thinking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when your adversary says something, you might want to pay attention to it, uh, especially if he has a track, a proven track record of actually doing some of these things. Um, let me go into a little bit of a lightning round because I, we ask all of our guests kind of a good strategy, bad strategy uh, question at the at the end of uh, at the end of this. Uh, but but two questions before we get there briefly. One is, the Russians have proven remarkably adept uh, at causing trouble. Their fingerprints likely are on whatever is happening in the Balkans now. Um, Viktor Orban still maintains a very positive relationship with Putin. Indeed, he's a conduit to Putin's money, whether it's going to Marine Le Pen or any, any one of another uh, group of disruptive politicians uh, in Europe. You know, Putin obviously affected the outcome or, or tried to repeatedly affect the outcome of elections in the United States. Uh, it apparently had its fingerprints on the Brexit vote. Uh, where and and groups are willing to accept this help if it is you know if it helps them win whatever whatever's on their uh, uh, agenda. Uh, there's a concern that Slovakia could go the way of Orban, uh, right? Russian fingerprints are in Montenegro and Moldova. What are the ways to sort of counteract the malign Russian influence, and and how effective could they ultimately be in? in fracturing NATO, right? Right now, and, and, and the EU, right now we're doing okay, but there are strains that he's capitalizing on um, that even extend into the United States where major presidential candidates don't wanna help Ukraine because of it, Ron DeSantis being one of them. I think Putin thinks that his best hope now, given that the initial invasion did not work out the way he planned is to simply outweigh uh, the West and try and provoke divisions within the North Atlantic Alliance in particular, hope for political change, try and stimulate political change in important countries as part of the alliance uh, as a way of undermining the, the Western support for Ukraine that, that we've seen so far. So I think we have to be very attuned to that goal of his to split the alliance. So far, I'd say he's been remarkably unsuccessful and the alliance has been uh, perhaps as tightly united as it's been in the post-Cold War period. We have one new member that's a very powerful member that borders Russia, Finland, and we're likely to see another one over the summer with Sweden. Uh, so I, I think it requires 
what we've seen so far, consistent messaging on the part of the leaders of the major Western countries about the importance of the struggle that Ukraine is in, what it means for the future of European security, and calling out in a very public way those efforts that Russia undertakes in the gray zone to try and undermine Western societies from within. Now, I, I think we have to acknowledge that many of those divisions already exist and they're simply trying to exploit them. It's not that they can create uh, divisions that are not already there, uh, but it's important that the, the governments in these countries be clear about what's happening and, and call it out when they see it and that the media, uh, not both sides, some of these issues, but call a spade a spade when something like that is happening. There are those who argue, historically, U.S. foreign policy and strategy is separate the Chinese uh, from the Russians, right? Don't let them connect. Uh, the late, great Peter Rodman used to say the same thing often. From your, and, and some strategists have said, rather than seeing you know, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea as sort of separate players who occasionally coalesce, to see them actually part of an actual coalition, that each one of them seems to act out uh, in order to distract, right? Iranians grab tankers. It requires American and international resources to be directed. The North Koreans do stuff. We have to scramble to do that. The Chinese do flybys and, you know, uh, cut ships and airplanes off, and, and that causes its own challenges. Do we need to start creating a strategy that actually looks at these four uh, as an axis, if you will, uh, and, and create strategy that's not just focused on Russia, focused on China, but actually a broader strategy focused on all four of them that could actually be allied and may actually be allied in a far deeper way than, than we know. So I'll be honest with you, Vago, this is a bit outside my wheelhouse, so I don't want to run beyond my, my level of knowledge. I, I can talk most directly, I would say, about the, the Russia-China piece. Uh, right. To a certain extent, this would also apply to Iran and North Korea. I mean, I think on the Russia-China side, we need to take seriously that this is a partnership that both Xi and Putin are very invested in and are drawing benefits from and is united by a shared view of dislike of the current international order, which they see as unfairly dominated by the United States and the West. And I don't think there's going to be anything that's likely to shake that loose. Uh, but on the other hand, I think China recognizes that getting too close to, to Putin in certain ways uh, would damage their own political and economic interests. And I think that is our goal here, right? To make sure that China understands the consequences if it were to provide direct military assistance to Russia in the war, for example, in a way that would lead to sanctions that would undermine their interests, given how closely their economy is tied to the United States and is tied to the European Union. Uh, I, I'm not sure we can do much on the Iran or North Korea side, but the level of support they're able to offer Russia, although you know notable in a couple of areas, pales in comparison to what kind of support could come from China if China uh, decided to go all in there. But I don't think they will. I think uh, they understand that, although it may be in their interest for, for Russia not to lose uh, and to become more dependent on them, uh, it's also not in their interest at this stage of the game to, to openly uh, you know, come out militarily supporting Russia. So I think 
that is an important message to China from the United States and uh, our European partners that needs to kind of be delivered over and over again about what the consequences would be for China of uh, shifting away from its kind of somewhat neutral but leaning towards Russia stands to a much more heavily on the Russian side uh, position. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, one uh, question. You're at the Moynihan Institute, named for uh, uh, a senator and United Nations ambassador and thinker and author uh, who had uh, you know, a pension for having a strategic streak in him. Um, from your stand, and, and so do you, um, what, can you give us a good example, you know, an example of good strategy and an example of bad strategy? Something that achieved something important that did so successfully and well and then something that should serve as a cautionary tale. Boy, you just don't want to do that. Wow, big question. So <laughs> when I took grand strategy as a PhD student at MIT, Barry Posen used to always define grand strategy as the, the means in chain that a country would tell itself about how to best provide for its security. So it's about matching means and ends, political, military, economic, diplomatic, et cetera, and putting all those together into a vision for how you're going to make yourself secure going forward. So thinking about strategy that way, the one that comes to mind, first of all, in terms of a successful strategy uh, is the strategy of containment pursued by the United States and the Western Alliance with respect to the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. We could clearly point to many mistakes that were made on the Western side during the Cold War, but I think the fundamental vision that Kennan set out in terms of uh, the whole range of tools at our disposal, resisting Soviet attempts at um, you know, expansion while waiting for the mellowing of Soviet society, that actually kind of describes what happened at the end of the Cold War. And so in that sense, I think that was a successful strategy overall um, for the United States and the Western Alliance. And sorry to go back to something we talked about earlier, but when you, I think of bad strategy, I think Putin's strategy for keeping Ukraine close to Russia uh, has been an unmitigated disaster from the Russian point of view. Uh, and using different tools uh, and thinking about that relationship in a different way would have definitely served Vladimir Putin uh, better. Uh, I, I think his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, was a bit cagier in that respect. And I don't think Yeltsin had a different vision in the sense that he also wanted a Ukraine that was close to and associated and tightly linked to Russia. Uh, but he avoided the mistakes that Putin has made that has really closed off that opportunity for at least a generation. Thanks uh, so very much, Brian. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the program. I loved how you brought Dr. Posen in, uh, given how close he was to Andy Marshall. So well, uh, well done, aside from him being your PhD advisor, right? Uh, thanks so very much. Absolutely terrific conversation and really look forward to having you uh, join us again in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Vago. Appreciate it.